Good morning, Grace Church. What a, uh, what a thrill to be back to worship together in spirit and in truth. As Paul, or not Paul, you're not Paul, Sam. As Sam mentioned, see, I'm already getting excited about Philippians. As Sam mentioned, we're, we're so thankful for new births. It's just interesting, you know, the, I guess I was going to say the life of a pastor, but for, for all of us, I mean, we celebrate life and we see life coming into the world and yet at the same time was at a funeral last week we'll be at another funeral this week and just the wide range of celebrating God bringing life into existence and we, we celebrate that and yet at the same time people uh, on their way out which makes I think uh, this morning in our time in Philippians all the more necessary so let me pray and then we will dive into Philippians chapter 3 let's pray Father, your grace is amazing, and we are debtors to you, but it is a debt that we can never pay back. There is nothing that we can do to earn your favor, nothing we can do to secure our own salvation. It is all owing to your grace, and so we pray as we enter into Philippians 3 that you would once again renew our minds Restore to us the joy of our salvation, recognizing that it comes from you and you alone. May you be our guide and our help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The headline in the December 17, 1936 edition of the New York Times read, Young Roosevelt Saved by a New Drug, when Franklin Roosevelt Jr. was near death with a throat infection. He was given a new drug, and maybe you're familiar with this story. It was called Elixir Sofalina. Oh, I don't even know how I can say this. I'm not a pharmacist. Let me try it again. Sofalina Midaid. He took this elixir, and his recovery was amazing, so much so that the news got a hold of it, advertised it, and there was a huge demand for this drug because all those who were dealing with infections, especially strep, um, wanted relief. So a pharmaceutical company in Tennessee decided that they could more easily meet the demand by creating their own solution. The solution, which was originally a powder, they determined they can just add one element to it. Instead of making it a powder, they'd make it a tasty syrup, make it a lot easier to go down. And so just by adding one additional element, 61 people died before they can stop production of it. 100 people died in total, and it was just the addition of one little element that ended up killing lots of people. What was supposed to be a tremendous curative aid turned out to be a deadly poison, and for those of you that are aware, this is how the FDA came into existence. Well, that is very similar to the gospel, isn't it? We have the gospel in its purest form, gospel that heals, the gospel that saves, the gospel that brings life. But as soon as you add to the gospel, it no longer is the greatest cure, but it becomes a deadly disease. 
You see, we say this all the time, that we're saved by grace. And what we mean by that is it really is 100% grace. As soon as you say 99% grace and 1% works, it is no longer grace. And it becomes really a recipe for disaster. So listen, if there's anything that we need to get right, it is the gospel. As we have new babies born, we want them to have the gospel. As people are breathing their last and going on to eternity, we want to ensure that what they have believed in is the pure gospel. Well, let me remind you as we look here at Philippians 3 that the burden of the Apostle Paul's heart is to ensure that they guard the gospel and that the church is protected from the wicked influence of what he identifies as Judaizers. You'll remember from last week that the Judaizers were these men, these Jews, who would follow Paul, who was going on these missionary journeys. And Paul would go and he'd preach the gospel and people would believe the gospel. And these guys would come in and say, well, you don't have the entire gospel. Let me correct what Paul has told you. Let me correct what Paul has taught. And let me add this. You must be circumcised. You, you must add to Christ. Their gospel was a Jesus plus gospel, which we know from Paul is not really another gospel. And their claim was, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be made right with God, you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And I want you to notice that they weren't saying deny Jesus. They said, yes, believe Jesus, accept Jesus, love Jesus. But in addition to Jesus, you need to fulfill the requirements of the law. Just one little simple thing added to Jesus and you corrupt the gospel. So, in order to combat that, what Paul does here at the beginning of chapter 3 is he commands them to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and who he is, what he's done, what he's provided, knowing full well all that that is. But he not only says rejoice, he says beware. And he doesn't say it once, he doesn't say it twice, he says it three times. Beware, beware, beware of those dogs, of those evil workers, of the false circumcision, the mutilation, keep your joy in Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Be locked into Christ. And be on the lookout, church, for all forms of legalism. Be aware of anyone, of anything that would try to strip you away from your joy in the sufficiency of Christ. Anyone who comes and says Jesus is not enough is out of their mind. You see, if the Philippians were to continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, if they're going to continue to grow the church and make an impact for the kingdom, it was imperative that they heed the words of the Apostle Paul by clinging to Christ and rejecting false teaching. And honestly, the same is true today. We don't have people coming into this local assembly trying to convince us of circumcision. But oftentimes, all throughout the world, you have people who are saying, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you also, and then they give you a list of requirements and rules. You have to be baptized as an infant. It doesn't matter if it's an infant or a child or an adult. Baptism does not add to salvation. People will say things like, well, I'm a believer because I believed in Christ and because my parents and my family are believers. 
That is not the gospel. You can fast, you can pray, you can give millions and millions of dollars to the church. You can worship on the Sabbath. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can listen to John MacArthur sermons. You can do all kinds of stuff. But none of those things, none of those things should be added to the simplicity of the gospel of just believing Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation. That is the MO of the religious people. Jesus plus. And that, that is not true Christianity. We, we sing this song often, Jesus paid it, you say what? All. Right? It's not Jesus paid most of it, and then I come in, and then I pay the rest of it. It's Jesus paid it all. To say anything else is blasphemous. And so this is where we pick up in Philippians chapter 3. Let's look there. As Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And in just one verse, right here in verse 3, what Paul does is he masterfully demonstrates the distinction between the false circumcision and the true circumcision, between the professing uh, false believer and the true believer, from those who are just merely religious and those who truly have Christ's righteousness. And so here's our main idea if you're taking notes. Paul, he gives a threefold description here in verse 3. True believers are those who experience the Spirit, they exult in Christ, and they exclude self-reliant works. Let me say it again. True believers are those who have experienced the Spirit, exult in Christ, and exclude self-reliant works. Really, Philippians 3.3 is like the quintessential verse of what a true Christian actually is. And so what we want to do is answer three questions, and we'll follow that in our outline. The first question we'll ask is, who are we? Who are we? Paul will say, the circumcision. Well, that might not mean anything to you in 2022. Then we'll look at uh, what do we do as Christians? Who are we? What do we do? And then finally, we'll close our time with what we avoid. So let's begin there in verse 3 with, who are we? Verse 3 says this, for we are the circumcision. Now, interestingly, Paul begins with circumcision. There are many terms that we love and adore as believers. Uh, I don't think that the circumcision is on your top 10 titles of things you like to be called. Um, saints, I love that. Uh, the saved, the children of God, the beloved, the redeemed. The, those are all titles that we can get with. I, I'll even take sheep. I'm, I'm fine with calling me a sheep. But uh, I don't refer to myself as the circumcision very often. So why? Why does Paul say the circumcision? What does he use this term for? Well, I think we need to understand the context. Again, look back at the text. You remember that Paul is contrasting true Jesus followers from these Judaizers described in verse 2. The dogs, the evil workers, the mutilators. 
And what he's saying is, look, they are claiming to be true, but they are not. We are the circumcision. And it's emphatic. The we is placed at the very beginning of this verse. It's the first word, which means that what Paul is doing, he's showing that it's diametrically different. What they are claiming and what we are. Now, the NASB, it includes the adjective true. So if you look at the NASB, it says, we are the true circumcision. And that trans translation helps to identify the true and the false. But I, I think it really is better just to leave it the way it is. Because Paul doesn't say we are the true circumcision. You say, well, Don, why do you think that's significant? Because he's saying, look, we are the circumcision. Meaning, we're the only, we are the only people of God. The only covenant people of God. See, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background, your cultural background. If you are in Christ, you are crowned with the title, the circumcision. Now, I'm not sure when the last time you really took an in-depth uh, Bible study on circumcision. So, uh, I imagine we need a little refresher here. And so what I want to do is point out the importance of this topic. And we see this all throughout the scripture. If we're going to understand what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3.3, we need to understand a few things about circumcision's design and the original intent and the significance both in the Old and New Testament. So we're going to look firstly at how circumcision identified people as the people of God. And then secondly, we're going to take a look at how circumcision was always intended to be an internal reality, not just some external ritual. And then we'll take a closer look at how this whole idea of circumcision can only be initiated by the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to take a look at uh, this whole identity and circumcision and how they relate, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, and we're going to look at the origin of circumcision to better understand how this was an identification marker of the people of God. Those of you that are familiar, Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant, follow me as I read, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes, Now it happened that when Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, so that I may confirm my covenant between me and you, and that I may multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your seed after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. And I want you to pause right there. What's the word that keeps popping up over and over again? Covenant, covenant, covenant. Let's continue on. He says to, to be God to you and your seed after you. Verse 8. And I will give you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. One who was born in the house or who has been brought with the money, bought with the money from a foreigner who is not of your seed, a servant who was born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. There it is. The establishment very clearly laid out from God to Abraham. This was something that was obligatory. And it was a sign that this is the covenant people of God. And did you catch that stern warning at the very end? If any of the descendants of Abraham did not bear this mark, then they would be cut off from the people of God. And so you see why the Jews, they're not just making this stuff up. No, I think that they genuinely took God's command seriously. And it was this deep-seated conviction that they wanted to preserve this right. You see, they considered it so vital that one's circumcision eventually became synonymous with being one of God's own people. And when we flip the page to the New Testament, we see that the world is basically split in two, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And we see Paul, who is a gospel minister to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, while Peter is a gospel minister to the Jewish nation, the circumcised. But, listen, circumcision was never, ever intended just to be an outward physical identification marker. That was not God's intent. He had something much more profound and beautiful with this symbol. The sign of circumcision has always, always, always intended to be an internal reality. There is a beautiful message here. It's not just some mere external ritual. The physical act prescribed in the Old Testament was cutting off the male foreskin. And what that represented was a heart that needed to be cut. We needed our hearts transformed. We, we needed to be set aside inwardly to the service of God. You see, the symbol was all about depicting what happens in the heart. What God has done for his people is cutting away the heart and, and putting away our sin and purifying our hearts so that we would be cleansed and we can enjoy a relationship with him. And the circumcised heart, you'll remember, is what Ezekiel talked about. This is the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove, listen to this, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And Paul picks up on this idea as he's expounding in the book of Romans. In Romans 2, 28, we read this. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the 
spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but is from God. You see, circumcision in and of itself, it had no redeeming value. Circumcision could not save you. It could not sanctify you. It could not change your hearts. And so God gives this really graphic display to demonstrate what needs to take place because sin gets passed on from male to male to male to male to male, from human beings all the way down. Circumcision is a reminder that that sin needs to be dealt with. And it can't be dealt with by man's own devices. You see, a lot of people thought that, well, we need a knife to fix the problem. But the reality is you you need a sword, but it's not that sword. It's not Moses' blade. It's the sword of the Spirit. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, right? It's able to cut between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when Paul writes here, we are the circumcision, he means we're no longer marked out by the scalpel of Moses, but by the sword of the Spirit. And both Jews and Gentiles, as they come into the orbit of God's gracious saving activity, we need to be made right with God through the Word of God, which is Christ himself. Now, you think about that. Isn't this true of you? Didn't the gospel at one point or another fillet your heart? When you came face to face with the truth of the gospel and the person and work of Christ, you recognized that you just have to clean up your act and change things. No, no, no. You saw God's glory and his holiness, and you saw your sinfulness. And what the gospel does to your heart is it shows you that you could do nothing to have him. It has to be all Christ. It has to be the Spirit of God working in you. And then you realize the only way that I can go to heaven, have a relationship with God, is through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And it's his word. Listen, it is his word that keeps Christians from falling into the trap that that we think that we need to add something to that message. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to show you a clear picture of this as Paul gives another warning there in Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, listen, you have been made complete. And he is head over all, all rule, all authority. And in him you were also circumcised, listen to this, with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, and I love this, having nailed it to the cross. 
You see, in the Old Testament economy, circumcision was the identifying marker. That is true. It preserved God's people and made them distinct. But in the fullness of time, when Christ came and fulfilled the law for us, all of those promises that God made, this covenant was ratified in Christ, fulfilled in Christ. So now, circumcision, hey, that's a matter of custom. And it's a matter of hygiene and even religious liberty. But if it's ever, ever made a matter of necessity for acceptance to be made right with God, that is part and parcel of the heretical teaching of the Judaizers. So, circumcision, it identified God's people. It pointed to an internal reality. But listen to this. It also was something that could only be initiated by the Spirit. To be circumcised of the heart is only going to come by the power of the Spirit. And that's what we learn in John chapter 3. You remember the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus? Here he is, the teacher of the law, the Pharisee. He's supposed to know what the Bible teaches. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, what does that mean? What do you mean born again? How do I do that? How do I jump back into mommy's womb? John chapter 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And listen to what Jesus responds. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. And so it is. He says, to everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen, apart from the Spirit of God, you have no hope. Apart from the Spirit of God, you are still dead in your sins. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not what? Belong to him. Only the Spirit can reveal Christ to us. It's only the Spirit that can convict us of our sin and cause us to repent and cry out for mercy and cling to the cross for salvation. And when that happens, oh, it's so glorious. I remember, 20 years old, have no desire, no inkling of love or affection for Christ. And the Spirit got a hold of me, and like that, transformation. I went from being a hater and hostile to God, and wanting nothing about the Bible and church and the people of God to loving Jesus. And it was all the Spirit of God convicting my heart and showing me his worth. Ephesians 1.13, this is your story too. It says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed it says you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And now the Spirit is your down payment, the guarantee that you are now a child of God and will one day be with God for all of eternity in glory. So circumcision, again, it is an inward identification marker that can only be initiated by the Holy Spirit. And the evidence that this heart circumcision is taking place is clearly seen in the next phrase. Look at it there with me. We are the true circumcision 
We worship in the Spirit of God, and we boast in Christ Jesus. If someone asks you, well, what do Christians do? Here's your answer. Point number two, what do we do? We worship in the Holy Spirit. And I just want to be clear because sometimes we use this language. I, I use it, you use it, and we use it falsely. We talk about like, hey, what time does worship start? And sometimes we're referring to the worship service, or sometimes we're referring to the music. Oh, I missed worship this morning. Right now I just got to sit through the word for, you know, 45 minutes. No, no, no. Worship is not the five songs that we sing. It's not the, the, the one and a half, two hours that we're here on a Sunday morning. What is worship? It is our whole lives. It is a lifestyle. It is something that continually happens at every waking hour. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for what? The glory of God. That means when you're drinking orange juice, that could be a form of worship. When you're exercising, that's a form of worship. It's not just doing religious activities. All of life is intended to be worship. It is a lifestyle. Now look back there at Philippians 3.3 because your translation, if you have the ESV or NIV, it says we worship by the Spirit. Though the Legacy Standard Bible says we worship in the Spirit. You say, Don, which, which is it here? I think either way, what Paul is communicating is that our worship is derived from, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And what do we mean by that? Well, just real simply, you know, your worship it doesn't originate with you. It doesn't come from you. You're not the genesis of it. Do you realize that everything that you are and everything that you do that honors Christ is because the Spirit is working in you? Everything. When you pray, Sam was up here praying and my heart kept saying yes, amen, amen, amen. You know who I'm amening? I'm amening the Spirit that's working through Sam. When you sacrificially serve another believer, when you evangelize a non-believer, it's because of the Holy Spirit. If you're using your spiritual gifts, well, that's obvious because that is the Holy Spirit. You have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the Holy Spirit. If you feel love for God, if you feel love for the church, that is owing to the Holy Spirit. Spirit. The natural man, listen to this, the natural man doesn't love God, doesn't love the Word of God. Paul makes this statement that those who are in the flesh cannot what? Please God. I don't care how nice you are. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you cannot please God. So anytime, anytime you experience a longing to be with God, that is because the Spirit is compelling you and energizing you to be in God's presence. And not only that, but if you have confessed Jesus Christ is Lord, you know where that comes from? The Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you, with proud confidence, say, no, 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 Allah is not the way, good works is not the way, but Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You know who's doing that through you? 
the Holy Spirit. Every single aspect, Christian, every single aspect where you honor Christ, it's because of the Spirit's work in you. And praise God for that. So it's the Spirit who invokes and empowers our worship. The Spirit ensures that it is God-centered and not man-centered. But I also want you to notice, just quickly here, the Greek term that Paul uses for worship is not what we expect. There are lots of words for worship in the New Testament, but two of the major ones, proskuneo, is what we normally see. But here we have latruo. You say, well, Dom, what's the difference? Proskuneo emphasizes an attitude of worship. Latruo emphasizes the action of worship. You see the difference? One's an attitude, one's an action. So Paul, in his argument here in 3.3, we say, well, which one did he use and why did he use it? He used, not proskuneo, but he used latruo. And you say, well, why? Why did he do that? I think he picks this particular word because the Judaizers, in their line of thinking, it was all about religious service, religious activity, all, all these do's and don'ts. They were focused on meticulous law-keeping. And this is where we say, well, but is that wrong? Is it wrong to desire obedience and fidelity to keeping God's law and God's word? And I would say absolutely not. The Bible, listen to this, the Bible doesn't condemn the Judaizers because they were working hard at obedience. They're condemned because they thought and taught that obedience would make them right with God. There's a big difference. And equally heinous is that they try to keep the law apart from the power of the Spirit. That's the problem. There are too many, I think, nowadays who want to say, oh, you, you don't got to be obedient. It's all faith. Well, wait a second. Faith is going to produce works right those two things go hand in hand you can't accept jesus and live any way you want like me when i say oh yeah i'm a christian but i'm a non-practicing christian but i'm a christian and that was my way to, to, to indulge in sin was to claim christ and his salvation but to try to live any way that i wanted and you just can't have that the, the bible has no category for that so look it is not legalism to be committed to obedience Legalism is relying on self instead of the Spirit of God for your obedience. It's thinking that somehow spiritless obedience can earn you acceptance with God. That is what legalism is. You should have zeal. You should be excited to engage in good works and don't let anyone call you a legalist because that is your desire. Paul rebuked the Galatians in Galatians 3.3. And this is the reminder here for us. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And what Paul is communicating here is that, look, our worship can never be reduced to rites and rituals and religion that you perform on your own strength. Everything you do comes through the power of the Spirit. Not just outward motions, not just lip service. There is no worship without internal change, which means you could be here every Sunday. 
and you could be singing, and you could even be serving and still not be worshiping. That's terrifying. In one of um, Jesus' frequent exchanges with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, he said this in Mark chapter 7. And you'll remember this. He says, but in vain do they worship me. And all of us sitting here today should ask the question, do I worship the Lord in vain? What does that even mean? What does it mean to, to worship in vain? Well, obviously it's possible you can worship with no purpose and no results. It's empty deception to come to Jesus and think you're worshiping him if the heart is not there. Well, Jesus identifies what this looks like. In Mark, uh, same chapter, 7, in verse 7 and 8, it says, But in vain do they worship me. Now watch this. He says, Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold firm to traditions. So they have abandoned God's directive of how he desires to be worshipped, right? If you wanted sacrifices, I would have given it. But what do you desire? What is it that God desires? He desires the heart. Well, it's also talk without heart, because Mark 7, 6 says this. He said to them, Rightly, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. I think that's significant. Jesus quotes Isaiah, which tells us this wasn't just a first century Pharisee problem. This is a B.C. and A.D. and current day problem. People coming to worship, but doing it with no heart whatsoever. And you say, well... Dom, how do I prevent heartless worship? How, how do I ensure that my heart is actually in all that I'm doing? Well, turn to John chapter 4. Let me show you. You'll remember the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well. I love this interaction. The disciples go. Jesus is there. Here's the woman. And she doesn't really want to do the hard work of letting Jesus expose her heart. You see that. She's actually deflecting. You remember what she said there in verse 19? The women said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place, the place where we ought to worship. It's a conversation about worship and what she's talking about. The location. She's not dealing with the reality of what worship is. She wants to talk about the externals. But verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now watch this. He says, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And he's not giving two separate categories. I've heard people teach on this, and they say, well, to worship in spirit is you have to feel it. 
You, you, you have to get into the spiritual vibe and feel these emotions. And if you're not emoting during the worship time, then you're not really worshiping in spirit. And they say, and truth means you just need to have a pure heart and an unhypocritical heart. And, and you need to have just pure motives. But I don't think that that's totally true, partially true. I think what Jesus is communicating here is that a time is coming when true worships, well, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He's saying this is the only way that worship works. The only way that the Father can be worshipped. You can't have one without the other. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. You cannot worship if you don't have truth. The character, the nature, the works of God should lead us to worship. Not just our verbal responses of gratitude and thankfulness and singing, but a lifestyle that shows the worth and worthiness of God. That is worshiping in spirit and in truth. These two things, spirit and truth, are inseparable. And we know that because Jesus says that in John chapter 14. In verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper, that he may be with you forever. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be with you. You see, initially, the Samaritan woman didn't want to go there, didn't want to have her sins exposed, didn't want to be confronted with the truth. But Jesus, in his loving and compassionate and tender and pursuing way, says, hey, the man that you're with right now, he's not your husband. In fact, you've had five others. And she, of course, she gets uncomfortable. She, she, she distracts. She changes the subject. And she assumes that worship is all about a place when Jesus is saying, no, no, it's about a person and he's standing right in front of you. That is what worship is about. She didn't realize that what her soul actually thirsted for was not another man. It was not security. It was not a sanctuary. It was her savior. And it's a beautiful story because that providential afternoon, Jesus helps her see that religion does not save but what she needs to be satisfied is the Spirit of God. What she needs is Him. And when the light bulb went on for her, what do we see? She goes and she cannot shut up about Jesus. She goes and tells everybody about Jesus. Why? Because when you've been transformed by the gospel, that's what you boast about. That's what you talk about. And that's our second point here. True Christians, they boast in Jesus Christ. I think your translation might say glory. Glory, that, that, that word doxa is not the word that's used here. It's a different word. And the word means to take pride in, to, to, to brag about. And normally you and I, we get repulsed by people who brag, right? People who make it much of themselves. We don't, we don't want to hear that. And so what, what is Paul talking about here? That we're boasting we're taking pride. Well, when you take pride in Jesus, that's the proper kind of boasting. We can never boast in self because we can't take credit for our salvation or our sanctification. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1. Let me just show you this. As Paul is contrasting what true boasting is and false boasting is. Good boasting versus bad boasting. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised he has chosen. And you say, well, where do I fall in all that? Well, he just told you, you are foolish and weak and base and despised. And your pride might say, no, I'm not. But keep reading. Why? Why did he choose these things? Verse 29, so that no flesh may boast before God. That is the wrong kind of boasting. Verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, you want to know what to boast in? It's right here. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that right there is the contrast. Listen, church, do you have confidence in yourself? Or is your confidence all in Christ? In his power, in his wisdom, in his ability to sanctify? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. I just want to show you another contrast. It's all over the Bible. Galatians 6 and verse 12. Here Paul writes, As many as are wanting to make a good showing in the flesh, these are trying to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised. Why? Why this big deal? Why, why are they forcing this, imposing this on these converts? So that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be, and you know this passage, but maybe not attached to the context. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You see, to boast in Christ means that you have put all of your confidence in him and him alone. And you delight in him. And you brag about him. And you can't wait to tell other people about him. Here is the reality. You cannot be a secret Christian. You can't live a long life and people will say, I didn't know, we've known each other for 30 years, I didn't know you were a Christian. That is, un I can't say that word, unconsciousable. That can't happen. We boast in the Lord, listen to this, we boast in the Lord and we boast in him best when we recognize all that he accomplished for us. That's when praise comes forth. When you recognize you didn't deserve any of his grace. And it almost becomes a natural expression of gratitude and love and thanksgiving. I love what Mike Riccardi says about boasting. He says this, 
the one who boasts in Christ, trusts in Christ with every fiber of his being. He relies on his work in the gospel to merit his acceptance before God. And he derives his identity entirely from his union with Christ. There is an inward exaltation and joy when he thinks about his Savior. He's proud of him the way a young child will be proud of his older brother or his father. And so, of course, he can't stop speaking about this Jesus. Christ is constantly on his lips. He wants everyone to hear about this glorious Savior and the work of his gospel. And so he goes around boasting in all that Christ is, proud of and celebrating the reality that he belongs to Christ and Christ belongs to him. End quotes. And let me just ask you, is that, does that describe you? Do you feel that way about Jesus? That's not how non-believers talk about Jesus. They minimize Christ and they maximize all that they do. I'm a good person. I don't do anything bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That's not how a Christian talks. I am the worst of sinners. And if it was not for Christ and his grace and his love and his mercy and his righteousness, I would be damned to hell. That's what a Christian sounds like. Religious people, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, they always want to point to their pedigree. They want to point to their performance. They want to point to their rituals and the ritual keeping and their ceremonies. But what you won't hear is they don't boast in Christ. Look, it doesn't take long for people to figure out what you enjoy the most, what you love the most, what you worship you can tell what is most important in your life by the three R's. Have you heard this before? The three R's. Write it down. Run, rely, and rejoice. What does that mean? Well, what is it that you're running after? You're running after something. You're ordering and organizing your life in some way to pursue something. What do you rely on the most? What are you rejoicing in the most? Everyone has something that they're pursuing. Everyone has something that they rejoice in. And it's either something in the world or it's Christ. So which is it? Christians, true Christians, they boast in Jesus. They rely on Jesus. They trust in Jesus. They get their joy from Jesus. And they run hard after Jesus. That is a true believer. And finally, this leads us real quickly to what we're to reject. What are we to reject? What do we avoid? The flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Normally when we say the flesh, we think of you know, sensuality. Maybe it's something that's, that's sexual in nature. Uh, the deeds of the flesh, Paul will outline in Galatians 5.19. Impurity, sensuality, immorality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, murder, strife, all these things. Those are works of the flesh. The truth is, you and I, we are going to battle with the flesh for the rest of our lives until we get to glory. And I love what Steve Lawson says. He says, the flesh may still be present, but it's not the president. It doesn't own you. It doesn't rule you. It no longer manages your life. So, so we're in the spirit, but we still are battling with the flesh. But what Paul is talking about here is not so much fleshly desires, but the fleshly confidence that we put on ourselves. 
When he says true Christians put no confidence in the flesh, what he's communicating is that the Christian doesn't trust himself. He can't earn his salvation. You see, before encountering Christ, this was exactly what Paul says. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. Listen, the flesh is anything that we do or trust that is independent of trusting God. And it's subtle. It might be your spouse. It might be your parents. It might be the church. It might be a pastor. Is there anything that you're trusting in apart from Christ that is depending on the flesh and its misplaced confidence? Jeremiah 9.25 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that I will punish all who are circumcised, yet uncircumcised. You say, Paul, that's a little confusing. Again, because it's an issue of the heart. Where is your heart? Physical circumcision means nothing if there is not a circumcision of the heart. And let me just say this, church. This really is a heaven or hell matter. So when you encounter Mormons and Roman Catholics and Jehovah Witnesses who want to make salvation all about what they do, realize this is a heaven or hell matter. They are not brothers and sisters in Christ. They have not trusted Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And so you need to know the gospel. I had one professor who talked about the gospel is like putting coins in a vending machine. You know, sometimes you put coins in a vending machine and it doesn't quite go down. And what do you do? That's what we need. We might get more gospel truth in our head, but what we need is the church and brothers and sisters and parents and our kids to get it down to the heart so that we're not just speaking it, we're not accurately describing it, but we're feeling the gospel and that's leading to faithful evangelism and witnessing of gospel truth. So listen, let me end with this. Where's your confidence this morning? Church, where's your confidence? Are you worshiping in spirit and in truth? Are you boasting in Christ Jesus and putting zero confidence in the flesh? My prayer is that this is just a reminder that Jesus is worthy of worship, that he and he alone is your salvation, your justification, your sanctification, and he's worthy of our praise and worthy of our adoration and worthy of our service. That is worship. I want to end with a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. Listen to the doctor. He says, is there anything that you can conceive of or imagine that you need or want for your soul. It's all in him. In him dwelleth all the fullness of God. There is nothing that the soul of man can need in time or, or eternity, but that is in Christ. You need pardon? Well, there it is. You need reconciliation to God? The man Christ Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. You need new life and a new nature? Well, you receive it from him. You need strength and power? He sent the Holy Spirit that you might have it. Do you need an advocate with the Father? Well, there he is, seated at the right hand of God. You tremble at the thought of death and going to face God in judgment? 
Well, you are assured that you will be clothed with the righteousness and he will present you spotless. And then he says this, what else do you need? He is everything. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the all in all. The man who believes that will make his boast in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have given us much to chew on this morning and helped us, Lord, to distinguish what those marks that characterize a true Christian are. And Lord, it would be foolish to assume that everyone here this morning is a Christian. And so, Lord, would you please apply these diagnostic questions to their own hearts? Ask yourself, do you worship the Father in spirit and truth? Do you truly have a lifestyle of giving God glory in all the various circumstances of life? Are you genuinely excited and proud of Christ and all that he has done for you? Oh Lord, I know that we will never be perfect, not in this lifetime, but directionally these things must be true of the believer. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who's on this treadmill of religion and trying to work their way and, and prove something to you, Lord, would you please humble them, help them not to rely on their own strength, their own power, their own righteousness, because they have none. Your word is very clear. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. And God, we can never, ever manufacture our own fruit. It needs to come from the Spirit. And so would you impress that deeper and deeper in our lives. And may we truly produce fruit that is bearing with repentance and signifying that you are a great God, worthy of worship and worthy of praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.